the children are dismissed for children's church. So if you are up through grade four, you are dismissed. If you're helping out with children's church, thank you for doing that. The rest of us, uh, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. I believe it's on 774 or 775 in your pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there are pew Bibles in front of you. You can uh, find that and you can read along with us. Uh, We are aware that we have some technology difficulties right now. Uh, Again, it's just to remind us that we live in a broken, fallen world uh, and that we need to uh, lean upon Jesus and the Word. So if you uh, have your bulletin, you're you're all set. That is a good thing. So so Jonah chapter 1. Now, Within Jonah chapter 1, this will probably be the last sermon I get, we actually get to the place where Jonah is famous, where it says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, Jonah is such a significant story, not just because it's within the canon of Scripture, it's part of the 39 books of the Old Testament, and speaks to us about this call to the nations, this call to repentance among a wicked people, meaning the Assyrians. It's not just uh, significant because it it is revealing the self-righteous nature of a prophet of God, but it's also significant because it's also found in the Scriptures, and Jesus references it in two different places. He references, references this in Luke chapter 11, which I read earlier in the service, and he also references it as well as Matthew chapter 12, and he speaks to um, these people who are demanding a sign, who are seeking a sign, saying, you will have the sign of Jonah. And so what does that mean? Um, one of the things that happens when we have Old Testament text that Jesus is quoting, that they're reiterated and spoken of in the New Testament, is it gives us a key to understand more about who God is and his plan of redemption. It's, it's solving a puzzle. Um, and, and many of you like puzzles. Uh, many of you do not. Um, some of you love doing household projects, and some of you do not. I had the privilege of, or the um, curse, uh, depending on your perspective, of uh, hanging a light fixture, uh, a new light fixture that my, uh, my lovely wife thought would be much better off in our um, study than the one that was there. Now, I always typically like the paint that's on the wall rather than the paint that's in the bucket because I know what it takes to get the paint in the bucket up on the wall. And I tend to like old light fixtures. I mean, I think, you know, drywall barren is pretty good. Uh, but Katie does not feel that affection. But last, last yesterday afternoon, we're changing this light fixture, and I turned off the electricity as we're yelling at each other through the basement. We could have used our cell phones, but we didn't have them. Um, and, and I'm up there, and, and there came a point where I didn't have the right pieces to actually fully install this new light fixture. I'd already taken the old one down, and I don't have the pieces. And so as I'm looking around, and I'm rummaging through the styrofoam and and all of the instructions that are written in four or five different languages, I'm noticing that there's a piece missing. Anybody ever have this happen to them? Like, you, you know, like, this project's only going to take 30 minutes, and it ends up taking an hour and a half, and your hands are above your head to the point where your, your deltoids are burning, and you're like, why am I here? Why has the Lord done this to me? You know, like, why, why do we have to do these things? And in the midst of looking and rummaging and, and really um, a, a sanctifying process, let's put it that way, Right? Because I don't know about you, but when I can't find the right pieces and I'm frustrated, I don't with great joy begin to sing a song of salvation. Uh, there is rather a, you know, a bitter tune within my heart, as it were. But in the midst of like rummaging through, I found the right piece, and I found the right piece in the packaging, and then we were able to assemble it, put it together. Yeah, I had to use a hammer, and you should never use a hammer and some other things, but, but it's up there. It looks really, really good, right? In a similar way, when we see the New Testament 
referencing the Old Testament, we are given a key, we are given a missing piece of information at times. And so it reveals to us the significance of that Old Testament passage and in, in, in a way that maybe nobody had ever thought about. Because when, they're, when, when the, the Old Testament Jews are reading this passage, they're reading about Jonah being in the, in the belly of the fish for three days. They're not thinking about the empty tomb. They're not thinking about Jesus being buried in a tomb and then rising up. They're not thinking like this, but Jesus references the sign of Jonah. And again, in Luke chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 12, that's kind of where we're going. And it's the idea that Jonah being swallowed by the belly of the fish is, is pointing us to this idea of sacrifice to this idea of sacrifice, but then also death and resurrection. In, in a way, Jonah w- died in the belly of the fish and was resurrected when it spit him out. Now, I know it doesn't say he actually died. He was alive in the belly of the whale, but that's the reference that we're seeing in Luke chapter 11 and in Matthew chapter 12. So that's where we are. That's where we're going in the idea of self-sacrifice, in the idea of sacrifice on behalf of, of all who would believe. So Would you pray with me as we get ready to read the Word of God? Father, as we open up your Word, Father, it is a treasure trove for us. And Father, I pray, Lord, that as we open up this treasure trove that you have given your people, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would find great hope, great sustenance in Jesus. Father, as I preach, Father, I pray that I would preach clearly. Those who are listening, I pray that they would be attentive. Father, as we think about what Jesus has done for us, as we think about his sacrifice, as we think about his death, burial, and resurrection, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would trust and believe, and by trusting and believing, we may have life to its full. Father, reveal yourself to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. The word of the Lord from Jonah chapter one. I'm gonna read all of Jonah chapter one and just the very first verse of Jonah chapter two. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. 
For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So, the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah, when we, uh, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, Matthew chapter 12, if you go there, let, let's, I want to show you this. Matthew chapter 12, we've already read in Luke, and there's a little bit of a variation here. I think the sign of Jonah in Luke is a little bit different than the sign of Jonah in Matthew, and oftentimes signs can mean multiple things. But if you look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, here's what you find. Then, the, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, that is remarkable just in itself because Jesus had been going about healing people. I mean, he had been healing lepers. Lepers could now go into, they were clean. The, the blind could see, the deaf could hear. I mean, the lame could walk and dance. And yet they're saying, we want a sign, a sign that we want to see that you're the Messiah. But in verse 39, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So, brothers and sisters, what is the sign of Jonah? When we think about the totality of the book of Jonah, Jonah being in the belly of the, the fish three days and three nights, Jesus aptly says to, to them, he says, the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So what he's saying is there's a reference to his resurrection or his burial and then his resurrection. What he's saying is the sign of Jonah, just as Jonah went down, down, down. Again, in chapter 1, there's, there's that term down, down, down. It happens in verses 1 and 2. Jonah went down to Joppa, and then Jonah went down into the ship. And then later, Jonah is swallowed by a whale. And where do whales go? Or, or It's not a whale or a fish or whatever it is. I don't know, right? I mean, nobody knows. It goes down into the ocean. So he goes from Jerusalem, a mountaintop city, you know, or, or Israel, and he goes down, down, down. And what that reference is, is to the death of Jesus. What we see is that Jesus, when the people come and demand a sign of him, he says, no, the sign will be this, is that the Son of Man will be in the heart of the, of, of, of the earth for three days. On that, you know, Good Friday, we talk about Good Friday, the crucifixion of Jesus, and then we talk about the burial of Jesus, and then Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And, and you know, if you're thinking about, you know, chronology, you're like, well, is that really three days? And, and the Jewish people would always think that a part of a day represented a full day. So if he was in the tomb part of the day Friday, 
all day Saturday and part of the day Sunday, that to them is three days. So Jesus, before this happens in Matthew chapter 12, says, this is the sign of Jonah. Now, this, that, what this means is if, if we sort of reverse engineer this about the resurrection, that means the resurrection is also speaking about the sign of Jonah or what's going on in Jonah. And so there's this, this aspect that Jonah is actually dying in the midst of you know, saving the sailors. So in this sense, now, now Jonah in many ways is not like Jesus at all, right? Like not, not at all. Like he's almost anti-Jesus in a lot of ways. But in this particular instance, Jonah is actually a Christ-like figure for us because he dies so that the sailors might live. And he, he, he's, he dies to self. So when we think about um, this, and actually, I said die to self. I'm not really sure Jonah dies to self. I mean, one of, the, one of the big questions is, is Jonah actually almost committing suicide so that he doesn't have to go to Nineveh? Or is he actually in a selfless act of, of sacrifice saying, sacrifice me so that you pagan dice-rolling sailors from Joppa can live? I don't know. I don't know the answer. It's one of those questions I have when I get to heaven. Either I'll be able to ask it or I'll be in heaven and it won't matter anymore, so I won't have it. I mean, that's how I think a lot of these questions are going to go. I might have it, but then eventually it's just like, nah, it doesn't matter. I'm in heaven. It doesn't matter, right? So, but with, with this, I think what we're seeing here is this idea. Now, there's another place that, that I want you to see. Now, now, the other thing that you see in Matthew 12 and Luke 11 is notice who rises up at this evil and adulterous generation. In Matthew 12 and Luke 11, it both says that the people of Nineveh will rise up and condemn. Now, now we're talking about resurrection type of language. We're talking about believers who will rise up and actually condemn the evil, adulterous Jewish nation who do not believe. I think that's a, that's a, a direct link to saying like the people of Nineveh this Assyrian, warlike, you know, just wicked people who have repented and believed, they will rise up in judgment. And it also says the queen of the south. Now, the queen of the south, I, I'm almost certain, most commentators are almost certain we're talking about the queen of Sheba as she comes to Solomon, who witnesses Solomon's wealth and then believes and trusts in Yahweh. So there's, there's something about this faith of these wicked people who actually stand in judgment over the scribes and the Pharisees who are demanding a sign of Jesus. Now, that is what the sign of Jonah is. It's saying, looking forward to this idea that this sacrifice, this death, as it were, would bring about the salvation of all who would believe. And all those who will believe will actually rise up in judgment of those who do not believe. That's what the sign is in Luke chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 12. But there's also this place, and, and I want to show you this, there's this place um, and, and, and there's a lot of things going on in, in Jonah chapter 1. There's so many different places and, and, and allusions and going back and forth. So you, if you're a Jewish person and you're reading Jonah chapter 1 verse 7, for example, and they said to one another, because they know that there's this, this great storm that's going on, and, and they say in, in chapter 7, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Now, a, a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, I said that that could have been an allusion to Achan back in the book of Joshua. Uh, we see in the New Testament, um, they, they cast lots to pick the new disciple. But there's also a time 
in the life of the Jewish nation every year that they cast a lot. Every year. Every year, the Jewish people would cast lots, and they would do it on the Day of Atonement. They would do it on the Day of Atonement to determine which of these, uh, actually, just turn over. I'm going to show you this. Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus, as we think about this idea of sacrifice on behalf of another, this idea of casting lots, uh, Leviticus 16 Um, And what we see is um, the Day of Atonement. And so they they take two goats, two male Israel, uh, um, Israel, of the people of Israel, two male goats for a sin offering. Um, But here's what they do. Uh, Look down at verse 15. It says, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel. But, but beyond that, he will also take another goat and the goat he will actually send away into the wilderness. Now I'm paraphrasing there, okay? He will take one goat is meant to be a sacrifice, and then another goat is meant to be sent away. And we think about this, there's this term that we use, there's this theological term that we have, and it's called expiation. We don't talk about expiation very much. Uh, It's akin to propitiation. Propitiation is assuaging the wrath of God, placating the wrath of God. In a sense, that's sacrifice that calms the storm of God's wrath. But expiation, the the lot that the the, the goat would get, expiation is this. It's the idea of ex, meaning carrying away, the carrying away of sin. R.C. Sproul puts it like this. Let's um, think about these words. um, uh, The prefix ex means out of or from, so expiation has to do with removing something or taking something away. In biblical terms, it has to do with taking away guilt through the payment of a penalty or the offering of an atonement. So that's this idea, this, this expiation. Now, expiation and propitiation, again, they're two theological terms. Uh, and some people might say, well, like, why do I have to learn all these theological terms? It's because you want to love Jesus more. And the way that you actually love Jesus more is you get to understand the words, you get to understand what's going on. And some people are like, well, I don't think that you know, we should have to learn these words. And yet I'm here to tell you, like, every time you start a new sport, you learn a bunch of new words and you seem really happy to learn them. So I think we can learn these theological terms, right? Like if you're learning how to play golf, all of a sudden you start thinking about things like par and birdie and bunker and putter and green, and you have no problem learning those terms, right? And yet, sometimes theological terms, we have a hard time understanding this, but this idea of expiation is this idea of removing, removing the uncleanness of the people, removing the sin away. Now, when we think about this idea of sacrifice, you know, the sacrifice in Jonah chapter 1, it's Jonah is both the propitiation, which calms the storm, the wrath of God, but he's also the expiation because the sin that is in the boat is then taken away. We see this in the idea of the, the casting of lots in the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. Now, let me give you uh, an illustration to understand this. Um, have you ever, um, we, we have four kids none of which are in the, in the, in the sanctuary right now because William's out serving and the other three are in Virginia. Um, so I can talk about them a little bit. I don't remember when it was, um, 
but we had a we had multiple minivans in the course of uh, raising young children, you know. And I remember one time we actually went back to Virginia to go visit, um, and our van was in our garage for like I don't know two three weeks. And I remember when we got home, <laughs> we got home and we opened up the van. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this. It was the worst smell you've ever smelled in your life. I don't know if you, any of you who have young children and you go, and, and, and immediately, like I did what every, any sane person would do, I shut the door. You know, like I'm, I'm not going in there, man. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm like, you know, and I, and I do what any brave man would do. I call his wife, you know, for help. You know, I'm like, honey, can you come out here and look in the van? You're like, something's bad. And she opens the door, and it is just, it's, it's reeks. It's just putrid. It's terrible, right? And so we're looking. I mean, we open the doors. We open the garage. We're trying to air this thing out because there's this smell. And, we all, and these aren't older kids. These are younger kids, right? Younger kids. Maybe our oldest was maybe seven or eight, and our youngest was like maybe two or whatever. And, and we're like, we can't find the smell. We can't find the source of the smell. And we're like, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Well, tucked in, like, like the cushion in there is this like half-eaten, like sandwich meat wrapped in a plastic sort of Petri dish scientific experiment, right? That now has black spores all over it, and it's just like terrible, right? So what we do is, you know, we, we, we you know, put a hazmat suit on and try to, you know, go in there and like remove it and we throw it away. But the problem is, is that it's, the van still smells. So like, you know, we do everything else. We bring in coffee and we're trying to get rid of the smell. We're trying to do this. Now, this is the idea of expiation. Within the heart of every person, there resides within our hearts, the sinfulness. And it makes us unclean. And it makes us not a fragrant aroma to the Lord, but rather a stench of sin and death. Like that's what's going on inside of our own hearts. And what expiation is, expiation is removing that which stinks, that which is rancid, that which makes us unclean and removes it from the Holy of Holies, otherwise known as a minivan. Okay, that's, that's, you know, I'm just kidding there, right? They're not the Holy of Holies. But that's what we're talking about here. We're seeing this. Um, now, when you think about this, this idea is that our kids, you know, they didn't do it on purpose. You know, I don't, I, don't, I don't think, I don't think they did it on purpose, but it still made the van smell terribly, you know, and, and again, there's this aspect of our own sinfulness that needs to be taken away by the sacrifice of another. Like, so again, the wrath of God needs to be assuaged. We call that propitiation, but our own sinfulness needs to be taken away. This, this idea of expiation um, how do we get this away from us? How do we remove ourselves from this? This is all day of atonement. This is all like the first six chapters of the book of Leviticus when we think about the sacrificial law. And if you're thinking about the book of Jonah, I mean, it's clear in the book of Jonah because how are the sailors brought to faith? They're brought to faith in Yahweh. They, again, early on in chapter one, they call their gods the generic term Elohim, and they come to exceedingly fear and worship Yahweh. Well, they do that through the sacrifice of one who takes away the sin from the boat. Now, this is similar and akin to what Jesus does, because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When, when the Apostle John saw Jesus coming, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus not only pays the penalty, but he removes 
this sin. Now, now ultimately, I, again, like we're sinners till the day we die, right? I'm not talking about imparted righteousness, but what I'm talking about is this theological concept that we need to remove ourselves or to remove ourselves from the sin that sustains us. Um, I don't know, about three weeks ago, uh, we were in uh, Delaware uh, visiting my wife's family. And at the time, we had uh, picked up a rental car to get from BWI in Baltimore up to Wilmington, Delaware. And we were, I was returning the car to um, the rental agency. And you, you know, just like, you know, you, you fill the car up with gas before you return it because you have to do it. And you don't want to pay for the prepaid gas because it's like $10 a gallon and all that kind of stuff, right? Well, I'm filling up the car with gas. And as I'm, you know, moving the, you know, the, the nozzle of the gas pump over back to the, um, to the, the actual, um, um, whatever, the gas thing, you know, some, some gas like falls on my foot, right? Like just a, just a little bit, just a little bit of gas on my shoe, on my tennis shoes, right? Well, I don't notice it at the time, but I get into the rental car and I'm like, man, it smells like gas. It smells like gas. You know, and I get into the Hertz, you know, rental car agency and, and I'm like, man, it smells like gas. And I'm like, man, it smells like gas. And the, and the lady behind me is like, you smell gas? Yeah, I smell gas. I wonder where that gas is coming from. And I'm like, I think I know where the gas is coming from. I think I poured gas on me. And then I get into my, my son's car because he's, he's driving me back to their house. And he goes, dad, it smells like gas. I'm like, yeah, I know it smells like gas, son. And then I get to my in-law's house. And again, it's really, really cold there. But here's what I do. Before I go into my in-law's house, I take my shoes off and I put them outside. Um, they're they're, they're you know, on the front porch because I know that they don't want me and they don't want the gas smell to permeate the entire house. Now, there's an aspect of that of, of, that's really helpful because that, that's an aspect of repentance, you know, or at least a picture of repentance. Because when we see something that's in us, we see this sinfulness that we're in or we stepped in gas, we want to remove it from our ourselves. We want to remove the dirt from ourselves because we don't want to enter into a house, a clean house, and everybody go, everybody smell that gas? Now, again, these shoes sat outside for four days. For four days. They were cold. I wouldn't put them on. They still smelled like gas. I washed them. You know, I mean, I sprayed them down, you know, outside with the hose, and they still smell like gas. There's a sense in which, like, we need the cleansing of Jesus to deal with our own sins. In a sense, like, putting off the sin is an aspect of repentance. It's not just turning away and confessing sin, but it's turning away from that which makes us unclean. You get this, right? Like, we need this. Like, every time we come into worship, and we go to the prayer of confession. You know, I don't know if you do this on a daily basis, but at least once a week when you come to worship, you get to confess your sins and say, Jesus, please deal with these sins. Lord Jesus, make me clean. Thank you that you lived the life that I should have lived. Thank you that you are the sacrifice that I'd so desperately need. You know, one of the interesting things about Jonah in chapter 1, go back to, you know, Jonah chapter 1, if you, um, one of the things about Jonah is that Jonah is just totally unaware of his sin. Notice, what is Jonah doing? The, I mean, God has called about, he has, uh, literally, it says, the Lord God of heaven, Yahweh, has hurled a storm at the boat. And what is Jonah doing down in the middle of the boat? What is he doing? He's sleeping. 
He's unaware of that which is going on and the reason for the wind and the rain and the storm around. Now, I think that that is an apt picture because I think that there are many people, I think that they are unaware of the dangers of our sin, that we are asleep to the sins that entangle us. We are unaware. He was unaware of the danger that he was in. And I believe this is that I'm afraid that we are living in an age of sleepfulness rather than watchfulness over our own souls. And I think part of the reason, and let me, let me is that I don't think that we take sin seriously. I think that oftentimes we think about this, this term, um, picadillo. It's a great term, picadillo. It just means little sin. That's what it means. And that oftentimes we can rationalize our own sins, thinking that, you know, it's, it's not that big a deal. It's not really that important, right? It's a small sin. You know, I mean, certainly, you know, certainly Jesus' grace can cover over that, right? Absolutely. I mean, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ can cover over the most egregious sin out there. And yet at the same time, I think that we're unaware of the way that sin cripples us. That it drives us away from the word of God and from the presence of God. That's what little sins do. Uh, Thomas, um, Thomas Brooks says this about little sins. He's an old Puritan. He says, um, so Satan will not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes, quoting 2 Corinthians 2.11. And he says, ah, says Satan, but it's but a little sin. You know, a little bit of pride, a little worldliness, a little lust. You may commit it without any danger to your soul. It is just a little one, just a little bit of sin. But there is great danger, just many times most danger, in the smallest sins. Greater sins, this is Thomas Brooks, greater sins soon startle the soul and awaken and arouse up the soul to repentance than lesser sins do. Little sins often slide into the soul and breed and work secretly and indiscernibly in the soul until they come to be so strong as to trample upon the soul and to cut the throat of the soul. Little sins multiplied become great sins. There's nothing less than a grain of sand, yet there's nothing heavier than the sand of the sea when multiplied. Little sins are very dangerous. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little hole in the ship sinks it. A little... A small breach in a dike carries away all before it. A little stab at the heart kills a man. The least sin is contrary to the law of God, to the nature of God, to the being of God, and to the glory of God. Therefore, it is often punished severely by God. The least sin will damn us, if not pardoned by the death of Christ. Now, I think that, again, in in the idea of us being asleep, there are certainly people in our midst and around us who are asleep to their eternal peril, that they don't trust and believe in Jesus, and we see them asleep. Um, have you ever met anybody whose, whose life is falling apart and they're completely oblivious about their life falling apart around them? Have you ever met anybody like that? And you just go, man, wake up. Wake up to what's going on. Everybody who does not believe and trust in Jesus is putting their soul at peril. And we are called to wake them up just like these sailors did. Wake up. Wake up. I think there's also an aspect for Christians, for those, I mean, for for those of us who gather here every Sunday, and when we come in, are we like, are we asleep to the to some big sins, but even the small sins that that keep us? 
from the word of God and from the presence of God or from flourishing? Are we unaware and are we asleep to, again, a little bit of pride, a, a little bit of lust, a little bit of unforgiveness, a little bit of bitterness, holding anger within? Are we aware of those types of things? Are we asleep? I think we need to be woken up to these little sins. The um, John Flavel writes, if you commit a little sin, you will offend a great God. If there is any little hell to torment little sinners in, or he says, is there any little hell to torment little sinners in? No. The least sinners in hell are full of misery. There is great wrath treasured up for those whom the world regard as little sinners. Now, the good news of this is this idea of Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 and 28, it's talking about Jesus, and it talks about what he does in his sacrifice for us. It says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men and their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Brothers and sisters, you may be asleep. I want to wake you up to your sins and then I want you to point you in the direction of Jesus and that you would fall on your knees at the foot of the cross and recognize that you were loved, forgiven, renewed, and called by Jesus. So I don't want to leave you mourning over your sin, although I, I want you to cry over your sin, but blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. On the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus speaks those words, he's meaning they will be comforted by the sacrifice that I offer on their behalf. They will be comforted by knowing that their sins have been forgiven. That I remove their sins as far as the east is from the west. In Psalm 103, when we read that, is removing our sins as far as the east is from the west, that's a picture of expiation. That's, that's a portion of removing sin. That you are saved by the blood of the Lamb. That you are cleansed. And whether you get gas on your shoe or you, know, you got some rancid stuff in your van, um, I, um, I think about that too, you know, the, this, this idea. My, my, my older son, Benjamin, he, he works in, in you know, uh, landscaping and some construction. And, and when he was living with us up until the time he was 21 and you know, moved out, he would come home and he was nasty, just nasty, to the point where I was asking plumbers, how much would it cost me to get an outdoor shower? Because I was at the point where I'm like, you're not allowed in the house wearing the filth that you come home with. And for whatever reason, it always seemed like he always, the first thing he wanted to do when he came home was just lie on the couch or lay on the couch. I always forget, lay or lie. Katie will tell me later, okay? Um, he would lay down on the couch in the midst of his filth and I would just look at him, shake my head and go, oh, I hope he moves out. I hope he moves out. And then he did, it was glorious, he has a son, all that kind of stuff, right? 
But there's a sense in which this idea of cleansing, this need of, of being aware that you're dirty, that you're unclean because of the sins that you have, but that Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. You know, 1 John 1 says, you know, if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to cleanse us of all of our sins, to forgive us and to cleanse us. That's the beauty of the gospel working itself out. Again, this idea of expiation and self-sacrifice. Now, there's also this call, and, and again, you know, if, if, the, if the idea is that we, we trust and believe in the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, there's also this aspect that we are called to live a, a life of self-sacrifice. And again, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, there's there's this call that we are called to sacrifice our yearnings, our desires, and to replace them with the yearnings and desires and the loves of God in Jesus. So what that means is, is what Jesus loves is what you should love. And so as we read the scriptures, we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we read about what Jesus loved. And, and again, we don't have to read just the four gospels. We can read from Genesis to Revelation because all of it's the word of God. I mean, if you had a Bible that was red lettered truly, the whole Bible would be red lettered, right? Because it's all written by God for us. But in the midst of that, we begin to love that which Jesus loved. So when you're reading the scriptures, think about this. What does Jesus love? And then also, what does Jesus hate? Jesus does not want to deal with self-righteous pride. He, matter of fact, the, the Pharisees, he, he pushes off and he, and he rebukes them. But the things that he loves, he loves children. He loves this idea of service. He loves to help the poor, those who are broken, those who are weak. All of those are people that Jesus loves. And by the way, if we are the people of God, being called to sacrifice in the similar manner to God, then we are called to love that which God loves and hate which that which God hates. Now this idea of self-sacrifice, um, this idea of self-sacrifice, we see this oftentimes because we see this especially in, in the idea of, of, of our children because I see mothers and fathers gladly and willingly sacrificing themselves for their children. There's a great movie um, called Cinderella Man. Some of you may have seen it uh, about James uh, Braddock, who was a fighter who in the Great Depression fell on hard times. And there's this great scene where, I mean, they are poor, 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 and they are just given just a little bit of food. And his, and his daughter, his young daughter says, is there any more, mom? And, and, his, and his mom just kind of shakes her head because she's watered down the milk as much as she possibly could. But James Braddock, who has to go out and work on the docks or hope that he gets a job at the docks that day, he goes, no, no, I already ate. And he just hands, he pushes over the little bit of food that he has to his daughter so that she can have more, so that he can have less. It's a great picture because it's, it's really the picture of, of what, it, what it means to be a parent, you know, to, to love, to be self-sacrificial. It could also be a similar way that we put aside our own interests for the sake of another, you know, it could be with your children. It could also be, you know, you may have a spouse that is ill and you have to set aside your own desires so that they're okay. It may be that you have family and, and parents that you actually have to sacrifice part of what you want to do so that they can flourish and have life. 
There's this call that we see within our lives that that Jesus calls us to, this life of self-sacrifice, putting aside what we desire so that, so that others might live. It's so hard, though. It's so hard. Because I'm so selfish. I really, really want the world to cater to me. I really want those in my house to do what I want to do all the time. And that dying to self, that that self-sacrifice is so difficult. Anybody here struggle with that? (laughs) And yet, it's the call of God in our lives. Now, how do we do it? How do we do this daily? How do we die to self and live for Christ? How do we sacrifice our wants, longings, and desires for the sake of others? I mean, it's it's a simple answer theologically and ideologically, but it's a difficult, difficult thing to execute, and it is this, is that we need to lean hard upon Jesus every day. That we need to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, please help me today. Please help me to die to myself so that others might live. Jesus, give me the words to speak in this difficult conversation. Help me to to have the, the right measure of grace and truth throughout the day. Help me to love them enough to tell them the truth and help them help me love them enough not to love myself so that I become angry and frustrated by these things. We have to lean hard upon Jesus. I mean, just every day, every day you get up, you've got to lean. Because I'm here to tell you, if you lean on yourself, you will fall headfirst every time. Um, Dwayne is, I know, our, our, man, our, our stuff is broken right now. Is that, is that video done work? Done work? Okay, I had this little video. I was going to get in a lot of trouble for it anyway. I'll just give it to you. I'll, I'll, I'll paint the picture. So, in a fun way, um, we have a, a little grandson. Uh, his name is Reed. He just turned nine months old. Uh, and over Christmas, it was so much fun to spend time with him. And, and there's this video that I have. And every time, hey, there's two videos in particular that I have of Reed. Anytime I want to smile or laugh, I just put those videos on because it makes me smile and laugh. Every time, right? Well, there's this one. Don't, don't think I'm a bad person. Or you can't think of a worse person than I already am. But anyway, here, here it is, okay? There's this one video where Reed is sitting up. And, he, and he's, he's wobbly, you know, sitting up. He's probably like, you know, seven months old at this point. And, and he's sitting there, and he's looking at us, and he's jabbering. And he is just like laughing, laughing. But what happens is, and you guys know this, babies are top-heavy. And so he's, he's like, he begins to lean, you know? And as he begins to lean, he, he, and we're all laughing at him, and he falls, and he eats it. He falls straight on his head. I mean, he's, he's sitting up and he just he doesn't put his arm out because that's a reflex you learn at about nine months. You don't have it at seven months. And he literally just falls on his head. And now he's a little guy, so he didn't fall that far. And it's on carpet and we laugh and we picked him up. But anyway, that's the picture. When you rely upon yourself, you're like a seven month old infant who doesn't know how to put his arm out and you will fall on your head and you will hurt yourself. And you'll cry for your mama. But the beauty, the beauty of salvation and being in Christ is that we get to lean upon Jesus. Because as long as we were there with him, he could lean and we were always going to catch him. 
He could lean as hard as he wanted to against us, and he was never going to fall. Brothers and sisters, to die to self requires that we lean hard upon Jesus, who is able to carry you. Now, in front of us today is, is communion, and it's the table of the Lord. And, and what this has meant, it's meant to strengthen us. It's meant for us to rely upon Jesus for all things. And so as we come forward for communion, I want us to think, I need to lean on Jesus and I need to feed upon Jesus in order to be sustained and upheld so that I might love others more. You see, what happens here in the church is that we get filled up so that we can go serve out there. That's what this means. This is what we do. We fill up so that we can go. Brothers and sisters, you cannot give away that which you don't have already. And if you are dry spiritually, you have nothing to offer the world. But when you come and you say, I can feast upon Christ, I can feast upon Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ flows forth from heaven, fills us up in such a way that there's an overflow, and it overflows into the world in a beautiful, gospel-transformative way. The uh, words of institution. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took this cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, this will always remain juice, and this will always remain bread. Nothing special happens with these elements, but rather, spiritually, we are filled filled up because Jesus shows up at this meal. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that we would partake of communion with great joy, knowing that we are hungry and thirsty, and the only thing that will satisfy our weary souls is Jesus. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would sacrifice ourselves for others, that we would think more of others than we do about ourselves and that, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would renew our faith, that you would build us up in Christ. So, Father, help us. Set apart these elements from their common use and use them for your glory and for our good. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.